This is Peace Talks, a special radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. So much conflict arises from the habitual ways we've been taught to think and speak. Thomas, I've told you a million times to keep this living room clean. You make me crazy. Communication styles that seem commonplace often cause anger and pain and can lead to violence. He screams across the table, You people are murderers! One of them screams back, Then why did you kill my son if you don't want murder? Today we'll hear another approach from Marshall Rosenberg, founder and director of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Finally, I got both sides just to hear each other's needs, and then one of the chiefs that hadn't spoken yet jumped up. The chief said, if we know how to communicate this way, we don't have to kill each other. From the family room to the highest level peace negotiation, stay tuned to learn how nonviolent communication techniques might reduce conflict and improve relationships. Today on Peace Talks. You're the most self-centered person I've ever met. You have no right to say that. I am always considering your needs. You're the one who's really self-centered. You know what you need? You need some therapy. That's what you need. You need to chill out. That's another thing. You're always telling me what to do and to chill out when you're the one making me angry. Linda and Scott here are acting out a conflict that probably sounds familiar to many of us. At one time or another, we've all either witnessed or participated in heated speech that seems just a short step away from physical violence. And even if it doesn't reach that step, our words are sometimes loaded with judgment and demands that seem only to breed more resentment and conflict. Do the ways we've learned to think and speak actually block communication, cause pain and further misunderstanding, and lead to violence? I'm Paul Ingalls, along with Suzanne Kreider. This is Peace Talks, the series exploring peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. We're speaking to you today from an auditorium in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where an audience has gathered to listen to and take part in our conversation with Dr. Marshall B. Rosenberg, the author of Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life. As a clinical psychologist, mediator, and communication skills trainer, Dr. Rosenberg has been shaping the nonviolent communication model, or NVC for short, for about 40 years. He founded the Center for Nonviolent Communication in 1984 and is with us at an auditorium in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to talk about his work and how he feels it can help us build better relationships and be used to diffuse conflict in many environments. Marshall Rosenberg, welcome. Thank you for having me. You begin your book with the story of your family moving to Detroit and as a child almost immediately uh, witnessing racial conflicts. Uh, As a youngster, you were harassed and beaten by bullies because of your Jewish ethnicity. Over the years now, you've developed this method that we're about to detail, nonviolent communication. To get to this method, though, you've spent a lot of time observing our typical communication habits and thinking about societal structures that you say disconnect us from our compassionate nature. Well, we've been living under structures that require educating people to believe that authority knows what's right for us to do, and that it's our job to do what authority tells us to do, and that if we don't, we deserve to be punished for that. If we do what authority says, we deserve to be rewarded. Now, that's a dangerous way to teach people, because There's a lot of people who claim to be authorities and know what's right and have a lot of power and can educate people to do things that I think are rather violent, like look at other people as enemies and we can be educated to think that we have to punish them because the authorities 
tell us these people are bad. So that kind of thinking is, for me, very dangerous, and I wanted to do what I could to show people another way of thinking and communicating that I think is more natural and more conducive to everybody getting their needs met peacefully. So, Marshall, you suggest that the NVC process you've outlined removes a lot of this um, propensity towards violence. Why don't you just start by going over the four steps in the NVC process? Well, the four steps are basically two steps. The The process is designed to help us answer two questions. What's alive in us? What's alive in us? Now, that's not new. Every culture I work in, and I work with many throughout the world, when they get together, the first thing they ask is, what's alive in you? They don't say those words in English-speaking countries. They say it this way. How are you? French-speaking countries. Como talivou? Spanish. Como esta usted? Rwanda. Amakuru. It's a natural question to care about how people are. So nonviolent communication says... Let's learn how to be honest about how we are. Not tell each other what we think the other person is, how we are. So that's one of the central questions of nonviolent communication. The other central question is, what would make life more wonderful? So nonviolent communication tries to connect us in a way with other people so that they see what's alive in us and what would make life more wonderful. And we can see what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful for them. And my experience has been when people can connect at that level, whatever the conflict, they can find ways of resolving it in which everybody's needs get met peacefully, where people give to one another from the heart, willingly. Now, the four steps that you mentioned, there's four pieces of information that we need to know how to exchange in order to make it clear to people what's alive in us, and what would make life more wonderful. And break it down. What are the steps that make it alive, and what are the steps that refer to wonderful? First of all, to tell people specifically what they're doing that is or is not contributing to our well-being, and to be very specific about that, not to mix in any diagnosis or any analysis. We call that a clear observation. The observation step, right. And then, once we've done that, we're honest with people, but we're honest with them from the heart by telling them what's alive in us when they do that. And that, more specifically, is how we feel, what emotions we feel, and we connect our feelings to our needs. And then we follow that up with the other question, what would make life more wonderful? And we answer that with a very clear request, not using any fuzzy language, but exactly What would we like back from that person at this moment in response to what we have said, in response to the fact that some of our needs are not getting met by their behavior? We're happy to have actors Linda Rodek and Scott Chereau here with us today who are occasionally going to give voice to some of these concepts and role play some with Marshall. Uh, Linda's going to give us a brief before and after demonstration of NVC uh, to get us started here. Uh, This is right from Marshall's book. So here's the before scene. Linda as a frustrated mom of a teenager. Thomas, I've told you a million times to keep this living room clean. You make me crazy. Pick up all these socks now or you're not getting to use the car tonight. Okay, so Marshall, let's start with the before shot here. I'm guessing that this approach sounds pretty familiar to listeners who would say some of them that, well, there's a firm threat of punishment there. It may accomplish the goal of getting the socks picked up. What's wrong with the picture, though? 
Well, what's wrong with the picture is that uh, it looks like the mother has single-mindedness of purpose to get the son to do what she wants. And whenever we have single-mindedness of purpose, it's our objective to get what we want, it leaves the other person with the impression that what's alive in them doesn't matter. And when people believe that, they don't enjoy doing what we're asking them to do, even if it's something they would generally enjoy doing. And so they're more likely then to resist doing it or do it with an energy we'll pay for. Okay, so from Marshall's book now, another option, same scenario, frustrated mom with the teenager, this time using NVC. Thomas, when I see two balls of dirty socks under the coffee table and another three next to the TV, well, I feel irritated because I'm needing more order in the rooms that we share in common. Would you be willing to put your socks in your room or in the washing machine? So how do the components work here to make this more effective in your view? She did say what she observed. She said her feeling and needs and made a clear request. She used the mechanics perfectly. But many people use the mechanics hoping that it'll be a way of getting what they want. (laughs) Because one of the hardest things for people to give up in using nonviolent communication is the objective of winning, getting what you want. Now, when I say that, many people think then I'm suggesting you be a chump and just give up your needs and give in. No, no, not at all. The objective is to create the quality of connection that will get everybody's needs met. But that means we cannot be addicted to getting our request fulfilled by the other person. It means we're more interested in the quality of connection than in any specific result. Let's take a few minutes on each of the four steps, and we'll start with observation. What do you find are the biggest challenges for folks in learning how to state observation? The biggest challenge is that we have been taught to think in a way that makes it hard to be specific about what we're observing. We're going to ask Linda and Scott to step up to the mic again, and we're going to try role-playing one of Marshall's encounters that he wrote about in his book, working with the faculty of an elementary school that was having communication problems with the principal. So I'd like to know one thing the principal does. We're going to talk with him next week. So before that, I'd like to understand what's one thing that he does that's not in harmony with your needs? Well, he has a big mouth. (laughs) Excuse me, but I wasn't asking the size of his mouth. I was asking one specific thing he does that you don't like. I I know what he means. The principal talks too much. Uh, Excuse me, but too much is your evaluation. You see, that implies that there's a right way to talk and a wrong way and too much and too little. Uh, I'm asking not for your evaluation of how much he talks, but what he does. Well, he thinks that only he has something worth saying. Telling me what he thinks is another analysis. It might be an accurate analysis, but it's not what I'm asking. I'm asking what does he do, and you're telling me what you think he thinks. Well, he wants to be the center of attention all the time. That also might be true. That might be an accurate diagnosis, but that's a diagnosis of his motives. I'm asking what he does, not what his motives are. Well, your question's hard to answer. It's very hard to answer. The philosopher Jadu Krishnamurti says the highest form of human intelligence is the ability to observe without evaluating. Okay, thank you. So here the teachers are having trouble separating their judgments from identifying specific behaviors that aren't meeting their needs. And until they do, they they can't even start to address uh, the conflict with the principal. If they have those thoughts in their head that they did, all those diagnoses, that he has a big mouth, that he wants to be the center of attention, 
All of those imply wrongness, that you shouldn't be that way. And even if we don't say such thinking out loud, if we're even thinking that way about somebody else, we lose power. So do you recall how this situation worked out? This was a real-life story, wasn't it? Oh, I recall very well. Um, with my help, it wasn't easy. Finally, they got clear that, with the answer to my question of what does he do, and it was this, that during their faculty meetings, no matter what the agenda item was, he would start to tell stories of his war experiences and childhood experiences. So the average meeting lasted about 20 minutes longer than you know was scheduled. And so the plan was... I would come to the next faculty meeting and they would like my support in talking with him about this. So I got to the meeting and I could see very quickly what they were talking about. No matter what was being said, uh, he would jump in and say, uh, oh, that reminds me of a time, and then he'd start to tell one of his stories. And I was waiting from a, for one of the teachers to confront him in the way that we had practiced. But instead of saying anything, they were giving a lot of nonverbal messages. They were you know, rolling their eyes, uh, poking the person next to them, yawning, looking at their watches, holding the watches up to their ears. <laughs> Finally, I said, excuse me, but isn't somebody going to say something? And then a silence, and one of the teachers looked at the administrator and said, Ed, you have a big mouth. <laughs> so much for my teaching ability. I... Uh, is there a happy ending? The happy ending is that, yes, I cleaned up the mess, and uh, I helped them to make clear what the observation was and, and helped him, the, the administrator, to see their feelings and needs. And then they heard his why he was doing this. And, yes, I liked how it ended. For folks who don't have the benefit of having you there to give feedback on their observations, what are some specific tips on how we can debrief ourselves? Like, how can you make your observations clearer? Well, we can make the observations clearer by asking ourselves, is there any way that a person would hear this as a criticism or an insult? Because any time we use words that are heard by other people as a criticism, blame, if we saw how much we pay for that, we would never use such language. So let's, let's see if our audience has got it about separating observation from evaluation. Linda and Scott will be reading a statement. If you think it sounds like observation only, with no evaluation mixed in, then applaud. And if not, don't applaud. And then we'll ask Marshall for a quick opinion on each one. So here's the first one from Linda. John was angry with me yesterday for no reason. All right, so no applause. I would agree there. I hear two diagnoses in there. First, he was angry. That may be an accurate diagnosis, but he might be hurt. I was with a couple married 39 years, and she said, you know, every time I do this certain action, you get angry. He said, I don't get angry. I feel hurt. So for 39 years, she had misinterpreted his feelings. So that's one diagnosis in there. And then she said, for no reason. Uh, human beings never do anything where they don't have good reason. So those are two diagnoses in that simple statement. Let's try another one. Sam didn't ask for my opinion during the meeting. I would agree with that. <laughs> I heard just the behavior. I didn't hear any criticism. All right, let's try one more. 
Luke told me I didn't look good in yellow. I'm in agreement with that too. This is Peace Talks, the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. We're talking with Marshall Rosenberg, founder and educational director of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. So moving on to the second component of the nonviolent communication model, expressing feelings. We've observed something. How do you recommend we recognize and name the feeling that the observed behavior is bringing up in us? Well, the main thing is to differentiate it from thoughts, to not mix up feelings and thoughts. For example, if after the word feel we start to say, I feel that, we can tell already it's not going to be a feeling. That's going to be a thought. I feel like, same problem. I feel you. I feel I. None of those are going to be feelings. Those are going to be thoughts. So a feeling is an emotion. We feel it in our body. So it's feelings like when we're, our needs are being fulfilled, we feel pleasureful feelings like happy, delighted. We feel peaceful. Those are feelings. But uh, we don't feel that what you did was right. That's a thought. And in your book, you talk about how there are certain environments where people feel that feelings are inappropriate. Like people oh, don't a, do feelings at work or people oh, don't in do my culture. Certainly, if you're a man, you don't have certain feelings. If you're a man, you don't feel frightened ever. You don't feel hurt ever. You can feel angry. That's okay. So to remind myself of this, I keep a picture of John Wayne in my office. He's got six arrows in him. And he says, it only hurts when I laugh. What do you recommend for helping people develop emotional fluency? Well, I hope that they get some of the experience that I did by hearing the people around me tell me how painful it was for them never to be able to connect with my feelings. So uh, if we could really see and people give us feedback about how much it changes the relationship and makes it safe for them to be able to connect with what's alive in us, I think we would do great efforts to get beyond this cultural stereotyping. But I went to schools for 21 years and nobody ever asked me what I was feeling. See, the schools that I went to oriented your consciousness to getting good grades from the teacher. So you were all focused on what does the teacher think is right. So your whole consciousness is oriented outward to how you're being judged by others. And in that way, you become a nice, dead person. So would you recommend uh, people, if they're having trouble finding a safe place for their feelings at the workplace, for example, would you recommend that they sit down with a supervisor and say, I need this, uh, and let me explain why. Oh, I would hope that people do it in any relationship, with their, in their families, in the workplace. But we need to do it with the awareness that speaking a language of life is often not what other people are used to. So we not only teach people how to speak a language of life, but how to enjoy other people when they freak out. How do you do that, by the way? <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. Um, I was working in a corporate setting once with some executives and all very serious. You know, it's not an environment that you heard many feelings. And I had just finished working with their wives. This corporation, for various reasons, asked me to first work with the wives and then with the executives. And the wives were telling me how sad it was for them that the husbands were all day in this environment that didn't 
support human feelings being expressed. And that would be okay if when they came home they could switch, but the husbands came home and they never were expressing in a way that they felt they could connect. So when I was sitting in the room with these executives, I saw what the wives were living with. They were sitting there, and it's hard to know what was going on in them. And I can't remember what the trigger was. I got so up emotional that I started to cry. Oh, my goodness. Now, in that setting, that's not what you do if you're a man, and especially if you are the workshop leader. And so I got the worst response I could have gotten, the most that would challenge my ability in nonviolent communication. I got this response from everybody except the boss. They looked at me like I had thrown a rat in the punch bowl. <laughs> now, the boss's reaction was even more trying. He just looked away from me, you know, as though... You know, he couldn't believe that anyone would, would cry in such a meeting. Fortunately, I was able to do what we teach in nonviolent communication, and that is to connect with what's alive in people, no matter what their message, even if it's a nonverbal message like that. And I turned to the boss and I said, Are you feeling disgusted when you see me crying because you have a, a need for men to be more in control of themselves? Now, if he says yes... What's the problem with that? I don't hear any criticism. I just hear that as his feelings and needs. But I wasn't prepared for his response because instead of what I expected, he said, no, no, I'm not disgusted. I was just thinking how my wife wishes I could cry. I'm going through a divorce right now. This is the reason. She says, living with me is like living with a rock. Now, you see, if I hadn't checked out what was going on in him, you see, if I had just, on the basis of all of their looks, said to myself, oh my goodness, I should have known better. You can't express your feelings in this setting. You know, I would have walked away thinking that I had to keep my feelings to myself. So no, I would hope in any environment we share that which is alive in us. And then be aware, though, that culturally some people might not be used to it. Some people might have some harsh judgments of it. But if we hear the feelings and needs that are alive in the person at this moment, it's a gift. It's a gift. So before we move on to the next step and the four steps, let's check out our studio audience again on phrases that either express the feelings of the speaker or not. So again, applaud when it sounds like it is expressing feelings, and we'll see if you and Marshall agree. I feel you don't love me. Anytime it's I feel you, it's not what I would call a feeling. It's a thought. It may be an accurate thought. Aren't there times when you think that somebody doesn't love you? You might be happy. And at other times, you might feel really sad. So that doesn't say what the speaker's feeling. I feel scared when you say that. I, I agree with you that that's a feeling, but if we were, had her in a workshop, we would say, don't end with that, because that's going to sound like you're implying that he made you scared. And we want people to make clear that it's never the other person that makes you feel as you do. It's your need. So we would have wanted her to connect her feelings to her needs, not to what the other person did. You're disgusting. <laughs> I'm sure this person has a lot of feelings, but I didn't hear them expressed in that either. 
All right, thank you. In the next chapter of your book, uh, you suggest something that it's a hard concept to master, that other people don't cause our feelings. I think anyone who's ever heard a father say, look, you made your mother cry, uh, is doomed to believe that someone else's behavior can cause feelings in someone else. One of the things I liked about where I lived in Detroit, uh, we, we had a, a, a reminder to a, a each other from the time we were six years old on not to get caught in those guilt games that adults play. We had some beautiful poetry we would recite. Somebody would call us a name, for example, trying to hurt our feelings, and we would say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. So we were aware of that then, that, you know, how other people responded to us couldn't make us feel anything. It's how we took it. But we lost that the more we fell under this guilt tactics of parents who want us to feel that we were responsible for their feelings, who want us to do things and do it this way. It hurts me when you don't clean up the dishes. You see, and if we believe that, then we end up doing things out of guilt. So to avoid that game, we make everybody aware other people can't make you feel anything. All people have to do is follow me around in my work for a while, and they'll really see this powerfully. I can be working in a place like Rwanda with people, everyone in a room that's had one or more of their family members killed. And some of them are so angry, all they can do is live for vengeance. Others have had the same things happen. They don't have anger. They have strong feelings, but not anger. And their feelings lead them to want to prevent this ever happening to anybody again. So not even something like having your family killed can make you feel angry. It's how we take it. You go on to talking about how having established that how you're feeling about a given communication to, to linking that feeling with the need that's not being met. Yes. And, and this is really a critical step. Why is it so hard, do you think? Because we have been educated for a long time to fit within domination structures, to do what authority says. And when you want people to be nice, dead people and do what authority says... The last thing you want them to be conscious of is the life within them. You can't make a good slave out of somebody who's fully alive. So the last thing you want to teach people if you want a domination structure is to be in touch with their needs. You want to teach them that the highest value is not a need to express your needs. Needs means you're needy, selfish, dependent, egotistical. Loving women have no needs. They suppress their needs for their family. Brave men have no needs. They're willing to lose their lives for the king. So uh, that's why we don't know what our needs are. Again, I went to schools for 21 years. Not only was I never asked what I was feeling, I certainly was never asked what my needs were. And give us a list of maybe the top five or seven generic human needs. Let me give you all nine of them, because according to the Chilean economist, uh, Manfred Max Neef, we only have about nine needs. And needs are very important to Max Neef because his whole economic system is based on human needs. And how do we measure them so we can really gauge our economy, its success, on the meeting of human needs and not the tragic way we've been measuring it? The first one he calls sustenance. Food, shelter, water, the basic physical needs. Next, safety, protection. Next, love. Next, understanding. Next, community, a warm community. 
Next, recreation, play, rest. He, he lumps those as one. And then, one of the most important needs of all, autonomy. See, look in the newspaper on any given day and see how many wars are going on over that need. Human beings have a strong need to be in charge of their own lives, to not have somebody else claiming to know what they have to do, should do. Anybody that says that to them, it threatens their autonomy. So you see all the wars going on between nations. But listen in on any family with children, you'll hear autonomy wars. Parent, it's time to, to go and wash, you know, up for bed. No, I don't want to. Did you hear me? No. See, an autonomy war. Another need, a need for creativity. And then, according to Viktor Frankl, probably the most important need of all, a need for meaning. Purpose in life, you see. How sad how few people on the planet are getting that need met. They're educated to misrepresent needs, according to Michael Lerner. We've been educated to misrepresent our needs. So we've been educated to think we have a need to consume, a need for money, a need for status, not realizing those are not needs. So in mapping out the four components of the nonviolent communication model, we've said a little bit more about observation without judgment, expressing the feeling, connecting it with our needs. And now step four, the request. It's the step that can actually bring some change, but you say we either tend to leave it out or aren't very clear about it. Can you elaborate for us on that? There's two things that is very important to learn at this step. First, yes, how to make clear requests. That means making sure you say to the other person what you want them to do rather than just what you want them to stop doing. For example, a teacher, when I brought this up recently, said, Oh, boy, Marshall, you helped me understand what happened yesterday. I told this one boy who was tapping on his book while I was talking. She said, I don't want you to tap on that book while I'm talking. So he tapped on his desk. <laughs> we need to say what we do want, not simply what we don't want. And then we need to use very clear language. We can't say, I want you to understand. What does that mean? How do we know whether the person is understood or not? I want you to love me. Too vague. We have to be much more specific. What actions do you want the person to take? Since you just mentioned that, let me jump in because I really like this one dialogue from your book involving you and a depressed client asking to be loved. So Scott is going to play the client and uh, ask you to remember the uh, the interchange here. I just I just want someone to love me. It's hardly unreasonable, is it? And what would you like your partner to do? to meet your need for love. And he got confused. He said, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then I said, it's going to be pretty hard for her to know how to, give, to meet your need for love if you don't know how to ask her for what you want. And that's hard. Yes, it's hard, because it requires courage to say clearly what we want. We may get it, and it may ruin our life. Then we know it isn't what we wanted. So it always takes courage, you know, to say what you want. It requires what Paul Tillis, the theologian, says is the willingness to sin courageously. To be clear what you want and ask for it. And yeah, it may not work. If I really reflect on, on what I'm requesting when I act to be loved, I, I suppose I want you to guess what I want before I, I'm even aware of it. 
and, and that's how a lot of people are educated to define love, that if you love me, you'd know what I want, and I shouldn't have to do it. And it takes them about five divorces to find out they're not ever going to get their need for love met when that's the strategy for getting it met. So it's not easy for people to do that. They don't know how to be that clear about what they want, and that's one of the main reasons they don't get their needs met. You're listening to Peace Talks, the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. After a break, we'll take some questions from our studio audience, and we continue with Marshall Rosenberg, founder and educational director of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. listening to Peace Talks, the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent solutions to conflict. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and our guest today is Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, Ph.D. in clinical psychology and the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication, also the author of the book Nonviolent Communication, A Language for Life. We've outlined the four components of what's known as the NVC model, observation, feeling, need, and request. And let's uh, take some questions from our audience here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Geraldine. I have a question about whether there are situations in which, no matter how well expressed your need is, that it it still can't be met, uh, either because the other person, that the person you're dealing with, doesn't really want to meet the need. or because there are conflicting needs at, at, in the situation. One example of that might be that the, the scenario with the mother with the son who is leaving his dirty socks all over the... I can imagine that she might express her need perfectly well in terms of identifying the problem and saying what she needs. Her son may feel that he has a certain kind of need for an autonomy that doesn't allow him to do what she's asking. Um, and then she, you know, I assume she also has a need not to spend her time picking up her son's dirty socks. So uh, um, what, what about those kind of situations? I've never seen a situation where if both people hear each other's needs, we can't find a way of getting everybody's needs met. The biggest problem is people mistake needs with strategies. So they, for example, a husband and wife uh, said to me, Marshall, I don't agree with you. Uh, the husband said this. We just have a conflict in needs, and we've been talking about this for two years, and that we're not getting anywhere. I said, well, let's see. If you tell me what your wife's needs are, and she can tell me what your needs are, I predict we'll resolve the conflict within 20 minutes. So maybe I'm wrong, but we'll see. What's another 20 minutes after two years, you say you've been fighting? <laughs> so what are her needs? He said, she wants to keep the marriage together and I want a divorce. 
I said, uh, what you're talking about is what I would call strategies. That's not what I would call needs. So we don't have conflict in needs. We have conflicts in strategies. So uh, it took a while for me to help him get clear, what is your need that isn't being met in the marriage that leads you to want a divorce as a strategy? Let's not talk about whether to divorce or not. Let's first get clear what your need is. Well, he had trouble with that. He didn't know how to express his needs, so it took me quite a while. I'd say 30 minutes to help him to really identify what needs of his weren't getting met in the marriage and to help the wife express her needs and to hear each other. Then it didn't take 20 minutes to resolve the conflict. So I have never found that if we get both people to express their needs, but now we had the time to do it there, but the biggest problem is when we don't have the access to people or the time that it might take to get that far because when there's a lot of pain between two parties, that might take a while to get both of their needs clear and to get them to hear each other. But if we have that time, I don't find that resolving the conflict is the problem. Uh, my name is Madeline, and I see a lot of trauma happening because children who cannot express their needs verbally aren't understood implicitly by their parents. And I'm just wondering how this process can help that stage. Well, we teach parents that the children have the same needs that you do. Even from the time they're two years old, the children have exactly the same needs as the parent. All human beings have the same needs. So we have to, first of all, help the parents learn how to get in touch with their own needs. Because if they're not in touch with the life within themselves, it's going to be very hard for them to get in touch with the life of their children. We also teach the parents that the children are usually better able to express their needs than the adults are. Maybe not verbally, but you see, we were all speaking perfect, nonviolent communication the first year or so of our lives. For example, when we woke up in the middle of the night, hungry, needing food, you know, we made it clear what our needs were. We, we used the language of life. Ah! We didn't say, parents, how could you be so insensitive? <laughs> I haven't eaten in four hours. Get your lazy butt out of the bed. We were coming from our heart then. We were expressing our feelings and needs. When we smiled, you could trust it when we were nine months old. We weren't faking a smile. So uh, nonviolent communication is not learning a new language. It's coming back to our natural language. Hi, my name is Pete, and I, I still have a question. Let's say just on being out in the street, you know, you're walking along and somebody has a chip on their shoulder, and they just purposely bump you hard, you know, and, and you're saying, okay, you're looking at them, and, you know, you've been challenged, you've been, your honor's at stake, you know, because your family might be looking at you, and you look at this guy and says, you know, what, what's your problem? And then he comes at you, you know, I mean, not physically at that point, but, you know, he says, well, get out of my way, dumb butt, or something like that, you know, and, and um, you know, is there a way to approach this without, let's say, losing your own um, self-image of yourself? Unfortunately, I have uh, a lot of people who ask this because they're living in, the, in, in neighborhoods or in areas where that is, you know, uh, the, the thing to do is to show how tough you are and to... So then when you're up against that, do you play the game and now I have to show even how tougher you are? So we show people a third option beside being a chump or beside having to play the same game. 
Now, I'm not saying it's easy because in these dangerous environments, the people I'm working in, they have a lot of challenges. But to show you how we teach people, police and others, and citizens that live in those neighborhoods, how to deal with such people. I mentioned in my book uh, a nurse uh, that had been in my training in a detoxification center in the rough part of town. This was a place where people on drugs can come in for the night and uh, get a place to stay. This woman told me, two days after your workshop, Marshall, I was uh, on duty alone at night, and this man comes in off the street saying, I want a, ro- I want a room. And I started to express to him that we were filled up, but I'd be glad to send him to pay, pay for his cab fare down to the next place that did have an opening. But before I could finish saying that, the next thing I knew, he threw me on the floor, sat across my chest with a knife at my throat, and said, don't lie to me. You do too have a room. Who? I said to her, how did you deal with that? She said, I did what you taught us. I said, what? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> You said that if you keep conscious that your objective is to connect with the humanness in this person and to sincerely do that, that that's the safest way that both of you can get your needs met. So I tried to empathize with what was alive in him at that moment. I said, holy cow, you remembered to do it under those conditions? She said, what choice did I have? (laughs) So I guess sometimes desperation makes nonviolent communication attractive to us all. So anyway, I said... Well, what did you say? Well, you taught us how, that no matter how other people speak with us, to try to hear what they're feeling and needing at that moment. So I said to him, Sir, are you angry because you, you have a need to be told the truth? He said, You're darn right. I may be an addict, but damn it, I want respect. Do you got that? I'm tired of not getting respect. So, sir, it's very painful for you when you, your need for respect isn't being met in. And, and, and you want me to see how important that is. And so she kept hearing his needs, and then she could just feel when he felt understood. Then he could hear her when she said, Sir, I'm very scared. Would you please get up and let me call you a cab? And he did. So she called a cab, called ahead to the other place to say, Be careful, the man's upset. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, Wow, uh, am, I, am I glad that you could remember how to do it under such conditions? She said, but now, Marshall, I want you to show me how to do it in a harder situation. I said, harder than that? She said, yes, now I want you to show me how to empathize with my mother. Marshall Rosenberg is our guest on Peace Talks today, author of Nonviolent Communication, A Language for Life. Uh, in which you mentioned some rather remarkable situations in which people have had the presence of mind to employ NVC in very threatening situations. You detailed one for us a moment ago. I'd like Linda and Scott to try giving voice to one other real story from your book. Uh, Linda is a teacher alone in her classroom long after school in a dangerous part of town, and a stranger enters her classroom. Take your, your clothes off. I'm sensing this is very scary for you. Did did you hear me? Damn it! Take off your clothes. Look, I'm I'm sensing you're really upset right now, and you want me to do what you're telling me. You're damn right, and 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 you're you're going to get hurt if you don't. I'd like you to tell me if there's some other way of meeting your needs that wouldn't hurt me. I said, take them off. Look, I can hear how much you want this. But I want you to know how scared and horrible I feel, and 
How grateful I'd be if you'd leave without hurting me. Give me your purse. So this, again, is a pretty remarkable use of NBC. And it may go without saying that this approach isn't guaranteed to keep us from danger all the time. But what can you point out here that gives us a chance to avoid the worst? What, what works here? Well, what works here is that when people need empathy the most is when it's the hardest to give it to them. So when a man like this is desperate for whatever is going on in him, that's when he needs empathy. And, uh, of course, it's extremely difficult to give it if you're in the position that this person is in. Unfortunately, I work with a lot of people in many different countries who are in, under horrible conditions like this almost daily. So uh, we need to give them a lot of practice under these horrible conditions of how to empathically connect with other people because you're far more likely to come out alive without being hurt if we can give it this empathy to these people even under these dangerous conditions. So we teach police how to do it when they're going into very dangerous situations. We have plenty of research to document police are far less likely to be killed in the line of duty if they go in armed with empathy than a gun. In a moment, we'll talk more about some of the conflict situations that you've introduced um, NBC to, Marshall. We focused so far mostly on how you can apply the nonviolent communication model in stating our own feelings and making requests. But in your book, you talk a lot about using this empathic listening and reflective uh, questions and language. Talk about how you help people sort of, it's almost like a guessing game. If people are listening empathetically, then they have to almost make a guess about another person's feelings. Is that true? That's a little part of it, guessing what's going on. The biggest part of it, though, the hardest part, is are giving the most precious gift to another person that one human being can give, according to Martin Buber, our presence even before this guessing what the other person feeling is, it requires, at this moment, putting our full attention on what's alive in this other person. And this requires bringing nothing in from the past. No theories about human beings, no prior diagnoses we've made of this person. Just experiencing this moment as a newborn infant that's never been before, will never be again. To just see that, and that's the hard part, because see, our brains work so fast We want to justify, defend, explain, give advice, all kinds of other stuff. So that's the hard part, this presence. Then when we're fully present, to be present to what? We could be present to the clothes they're wearing, but we want to be present in nonviolent communication to what's alive in this person. What are they feeling at this moment? What are they needing at this moment? And that's the part, yes, we may have to guess. We may not know for sure. If they're saying them directly, no problem. But if they're not, and not many people do know how to directly express their need. In fact, sadly, most people, the best way they know how to express their needs is to start with something like, the problem with you is, that's their way of saying, a need of mine isn't getting met. How sad, you see. I've been trying out NVC any chance I can uh, since I became familiar with your work a couple of years ago. And it is really hard to overcome what I call just common interchanges in speech. And you talk about this in this area of your book. We tend to want to jump in with advice or we want to say, you know, that happened to me once and start telling a story. And it seems so common, you know, to offer advice because you think people are asking for it. 
Yes, I, I mentioned to the group I was dealing with earlier today, my children really gave me a good lesson on this. They taught me never to give them advice unless I received a request in writing signed by a lawyer. But it's not easy, yeah, when somebody says something, especially if what they're saying we don't believe or we don't agree with. We want to jump in and correct them or we want to defend ourselves, all of which is not the best way to connect with that person. So we show, as hard as it is, how to take a deep breath, and if you're not able to do this right away, at least see what's going on in you. Give yourself enough empathy to see what's triggered in you, to learn how to do that to yourself so that you can then put your full attention on the other person. I also mentioned earlier today, when I was first learning how to do this, it wasn't easy, because all of those things you said come into your head were coming into mine. And one day I was having a little disagreement with my oldest son, and uh, he said something, and right away I couldn't just hear his feelings and needs. I started to get angry. I started to have a desire to teach him a lesson, and, and I, had a lot, I had to take a deep breath, see all that going on in me before I could just try to hear his feelings and needs. And then he said something else, and I had the same problem. I started to react again. Well, this was taking me a while to stop and get clear. So meanwhile, his friends were waiting for him outside, and finally he got impatient. He said, Daddy, it's taking you so long to talk. I can say, well, let me tell you what I can say quickly. Do it my way or I'll kick your butt. <laughs> he said... Take your time, Dad. Take your time. <laughs> so let's hear what this empathic listening sounds like with our actor friends, uh, Linda and Scott. We will borrow a scenario from Marshall's book in which a cancer patient's wife is interacting with a nurse who's trying to use elements of NVC to help her connect with her feelings. Uh, the wife starts off by complaining about a physical therapist they've had in the home care. So Linda's playing the wife and Scott, the nurse. Well, she's a bad therapist. It sounds to me like you're feeling annoyed and perhaps you want to see a different quality of care. Well, she doesn't do anything. She made him stop walking when his pulse got too high. Is that because you want your husband to get better? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just so scared. Are you scared of losing him? <laughs> yes. We've been together for so long. You know, he's always been there for me. He's always been there. So, it sounds to me like you're sad when you think of, of living without him. <laughs> There's no one else besides him. He's all I have, you know. This, this feels like hard work when we're watching it uh, and listening to it. Also, you mention in the book that sometimes people, when they hear this relentless paraphrasing, questioning, trying to connect with the feelings that sometimes they say, hey, stop psychoanalyzing me. Well, the, my experience is people will feel very good about it if it's coming out of the right energy. If it's done as a, ta a technique, mechanically, it'll drive people nuts. <laughs> you know, if a son says at the dinner table, Dad, would you pass the salt? And the father says, are you feeling unsalted and you want some more food? <laughs> Uh, it can drive people nuts. So uh, we teach people that be conscious of what your intent is when you are trying to connect empathically. Make sure you're not trying to fix the other person. Make sure you're not trying to make them feel better. Make sure you're 
meeting your own needs in doing this, that you want to connect with what's alive in this person right now. That's an end itself, just that connection. Because that's, that's when it is healing for the other person, when they feel that your intent is to sincerely connect with what's alive in them and not to fix them or psychoanalyze them. But this scenario is a little bit easier because you've got the person who's being empathetic is really not involved in the situation. Talk about a scenario where you've got maybe intimate partners who are fighting, and in the moment they have to figure out um, whose turn it is. Well, very often it's going to happen between uh, people. that uh, They might both be in pain at the same time and both want this understanding. So if one says, I'm in too much pain right now to hear you, I'm, uh, I really need you to hear me right now, can you do it? And the other person says, no, I'm in too much pain to hear you right now, can you hear? If they can speak at that language, no problem. They're being honest at least, why they can't hear each other. And if they can do that, I'm sure that eventually one of them will be able to, to hear the other person. Let's talk for a moment about anger, because you devote an entire chapter in your book to expressing anger fully. And we've heard that anger shouldn't stay bottled up, but how do you let it out in an appropriate way? Yes, well, in my book, you probably also recall, I was working with some prisoners on this subject. I work in several prisons in several countries, and of course, anger management is one of the frequent ways we show them how to deal, use nonviolent communication. So I was in a prison in Sweden, and we picked a good day to deal with anger, because this one prisoner, he was really angry this day uh, at the prison officials. So I said to him, uh, what uh, did they do that is the stimulus for your anger? See, I was asking him for an observation. He said, I made a request three weeks ago for, you know, some job training, and I still haven't heard from him. Well, he gave me a good, clear observation. He didn't mix in any diagnosis. So I said, fine, uh, that answered my question. Now I want you to tell me what is the cause of your anger. Why are you angry? He said, I just told you. No, I said, remember last week we, when we were working on anger, it's never the other people that make you angry or what they do. It's what you're telling yourself. So what are you telling yourself that's making you angry about this? They have no right to treat me this way. You know, they treat me like I'm some dog. And he went on like that. He had about five or six other things in there. See, that's what makes us angry, that kind of thinking. Thinking that is life alienated. It's not directly connected to needs. Our needs are others. A language that implies wrongness. So I said, fine, now you've told me the cause of your anger. You're thinking that way. He said, what's wrong with thinking that way? I said, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being angry. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with thinking that way. I just want you to be aware that that's the cause of your anger, not the other people. Now, remember the other step in dealing with our anger in a way that helps us to fully express it to be aware that that thinking that's making you angry is an expression of needs, a distorted expression of needs. So what needs of yours are not met in this situation that's behind the anger? He said, man, I have a need to make something out of myself when I get out of this damn prison. I don't want to end up back in here again. If I don't get that job training, then I'm going to end up back in here again. So that's your need. You really want to make something out of yourself. Yeah! And how are you feeling right now when your attention is on your needs? I'm scared, man. I'm scared. Now, I said to him, when you, you say you got an appointment with them this afternoon, yeah. Do you think you're more likely to get your needs met if you go in there angry because you have all those judgments in your head? Or if you go in there 
connected to your needs and how scared you are and say that. It's obvious, man, I'm more likely to give my needs met if I express them. And he went over and sat down in a chair, and I don't know that I've ever seen anybody look sadder. And I said to him, hey, what's going on? He said, I can't talk about it now. After lunch, he came up to me and said, I wish to hell you had taught me about anger two years ago, what you taught me this morning, Marshal. I wouldn't have had to have killed my best friend. See, So that's how you fully express anger, that when you're angry, shut up until you come back to life. And you come back to life when you're conscious that you're not angry at what the other person did. You're angry because of the thinking that's racing through your head. So we show people how to identify that thinking and then quickly translate it into the truth, the need that isn't being met. And when you're in touch with your needs, you cannot be angry. You'll have strong feelings, fear, frustration, sadness, but not anger. Then you're connected to life. Then when you open your mouth, you're fully expressing what's going on in you. There are so many applications to what you're just describing, and I found the example of the environmental activists uh, in your book uh, channeling their anger into empathy and specific requests as an interesting example. And and this might also have application to political discourse as well. Uh, It sounds like you're saying that a lot of the anger expressed openly at politicians or companies doesn't have much of a chance of getting an activist's needs met, really, if it's just expressed in anger. Yes, we, we show people involved in social change that if you really want to create change, we have to get rid of enemy images, the enemy images that make us angry. And to realize that all of those enemy images are tragic expressions of our needs. The idea is not to go out and punish bad guys. If we really are scared about what's happening... Let's go and trust that these other people have the same needs that we do. And let's show them other ways of getting everybody's needs met that are more effective and less costly. Marshall, you've been invited all over the world to help mediate disputes in um, labor conflicts, neighborhoods, political uprisings. Share a couple stories that have given you faith in this model. Oh, I get a lot of faith in this model by mediating between groups that are really hating each other. It gives me faith because I know that when I connect both sides with each other's humanness, conflicts which seem unresolvable, it's just amazing how the conflicts are so easy to resolve when we can get rid of the enemy images. I, I mention in my book being invited to mediate between two tribes in northern Nigeria, a Christian tribe and a Muslim tribe. 40% of the population killed on both sides in one year over fighting about how many places in the marketplace each tribe would have to display its wares. So now I'm in a room with 12 chiefs from the Christian tribe on one side of a table, 12 chiefs from a Muslim on the other. And I said, I'd like whoever wants to begin by telling us what your needs are that are not being met in this conflict. So a a chief from the Christian tribe immediately responds this way. He screams across the table, You people are murderers! One of them screams back, Then why did you kill my son if you don't want murder? I said to the chief who screamed murderer, Chief, are you saying that you have a need for safety and protection and you want to be sure that conflicts from now on are resolved without violence? 
See, I'm translating murderer into a need. See, all judgments like that, I believe, are tragic expressions of needs. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that wasn't exactly what he said, but (laughs) I think it meant it was expressing what was in his heart. Well, now that's a big step to get the, the enemy image translated into an unmet need. Now the next step is to make sure that that need was received by the other side. See, we never assume in nonviolent communication message sent is message received. So I turned to the other side of the table and I said, would the chief over here please reflect back what he said his need was? And then the other gentleman whose son had been killed screamed again, then why did you kill my son? And I had to do some emergency empathy there to give this second chief some empathy for the pain he was in before I could go back to asking him to repeat the other person's needs. And he said it back. Whew, okay, that's, I got one side's needs expressed. The, heard the other side hears it. Then this side, I said, would you express your needs? They've been trying to dominate us for 80 years. We're not going to tolerate it anymore. So you have a need for equality. Is that what I hear you say? That's exactly right, see. And I said to it, would somebody on this side say back what you heard the chief say his needs were? But, excuse me, excuse me. See, a big rule in nonviolent communication. Never put your butt in another person's face. (laughs) And I had to repeat it, I think, one other time. But now, finally, I got both sides just to hear each other's needs, and then one of the chiefs that hadn't spoken yet jumped up and came toward me and seemed very intense, and he talked directly to me and looked like he was angry at me, so I was very eager to hear what my translator translated. But when it came out, I loved it. He said, Marshal, the chief said, if we know how to communicate this way, we don't have to kill each other. But we can't learn this in one day. I was going to ask at the end of the day if they saw value in this we would be glad to train people from both tribes and this chief said I want to be one trained and then one from the other side says that so before we left that day we had three people from each side that wanted to be trained to do what I had done there so in the future they would have built in ways of resolving the conflicts without the violence so I'm guessing in this process that you've repeated so many times you have to Except the small victories, as you say, of just getting the people together to begin to communicate, to be interested in training. And then I'm guessing that some of the conflicts are resolved and others break down and you hear that some community that you visited is at each other's throats again. Um, This must be hard. Yes, it's very uh, sad to see that. Incidentally, that, that one's a good example. We had peace for a while, but you probably read in the newspapers not too long ago. Recently, those same two tribes were at it again over a beauty contest. The one side didn't want it, and the other side did, and they were back at the violence again. So uh, we need to do more work training people there, getting this into the next generation in the schools. We really need to take a longer-term approach in areas like that. Marshall, it doesn't seem that we have much modeling of this more careful and empathic form of communication, particularly in our media. TV, films, radio, even literature. Um, And from my work in media, I'm I'm guessing it's because this method takes time and script writers say, you know, we don't have time for that and people don't talk like this. So we never get to see it modeled or celebrated and we're kind of stuck in a cycle of ineffective modeling. Any ideas about how to turn this around? 
this is very painful for me when I don't see this in the media uh, because I'm convinced that if we were to get certain programs out in the media, they would be very interesting to people. They would watch them with just as much interest as they're now watching. You know, as you probably know, that the programs that children are watching in the evening uh, during the, the prime times, in more than half the programs, the hero either kills somebody or beats them up. So the amount of violence that children see by the time they're 15 years old statistically is scary. So yes, I want us to show over the media other ways of, of relating, and it can be very entertaining. And we have uh, several projects in mind that we're hoping we can put into the media to show in an entertaining way that there are other ways of dealing with family problems, international problems, and not just to talk about it, but to demonstrate it. So we're very eager to get this out in the media. Can you tell us about those projects? Yes. Uh, for example, in, uh, in France, I was doing some work uh, through the, uh, one of the ministers and uh, one of the cabinet uh, ministers, and uh, the woman that was the head of women's and children affairs in the French government. And she, they also made her the uh, head of uh, a program to deal with drugs, parents and drugs and how to talk to your children about drugs. And after she'd invited me to work with members of the government for a while, she said, Marshall, what about an entertaining television program? Not a usual educational television program, but an entertaining one where people would learn nonviolent communication like how to use it, use, dealing with your children with delicate issues like drug usage, but how to do it in an entertaining program where they would learn nonviolent communication, but without even knowing they were learning it. I said, oh, I love the idea. And she said, yes, well, we have some funds for doing that. So uh, how about if I send a producer to where you live in Switzerland, and uh, you two spend a couple days thinking about what this program would look like. Oh, no, that was really fun to sit down with this producer. And, and we came up with this program, that it would be a, a kind of usual series that you see every week. And the hero of this would be a woman, a single parent, single parenting, two teenagers. And they were in a tough part of town, so drug usage was a big issue and a lot of other issues. But this woman in this program we had in mind would no nonviolent communication. She would be kind of a natural at it. She would be able to empathize with her children under difficult conditions, be honest with them without blaming, and deal with other crises. So that was the, what the program was going to be. People would watch it, be, in, be very intrigued with this woman, and, and learn from her. However, just before we were about to put it into production, this uh, minister in the government, uh, she brought in... Uh, two members from the Palestinian Liberation Organization for cancer treatments into France. And this was just before the Palestinian Liberation Organization was recognized as a legitimate organization. And so she got into political trouble for that, and that and some other things, she left the government, and we never did get that program out on the air. So I'm still just eager to get that kind of a program on the television, an entertaining program that really teaches something like this. Sesame Street was interested in a program for very young children to teach them nonviolence. And uh, they talked to us about consulting with that, and we gave them some ideas. But that gave me an idea for a program where the hero of the program we've designed, and we're trying to get a way to get it out onto the networks now, 
the hero of this is a nine-year-old girl, and she really knows how to empathize. And so whenever she sees her friends into conflicts with their, their friends or with their parents or their teachers, in a very playful and, and natural way, she shows them how to deal with it in a nonviolent communication way. So we're trying to get that program out. I think I heard you mention a possible name for a program like this uh, just a moment ago. I mean, everybody's familiar with ER, right, emergency room. How about EE, emergency empathy? I love that. <laughs> I, thought, I love that. I thought you might. Let's go back to our audience to see what other questions or scenarios have come to mind. Go ahead, please. Hi, I'm uh, Linda. How are you implementing your work? I didn't read your book, sorry, yet. But how are you implementing this into the school systems, given the way it is now? Well, we have schools going in several countries, many of them in some countries, that are what we call nonviolent communication schools, meaning that the following is typical. They, the teachers, students, and parents are taught nonviolent communication, a way of communicating, but that's just a part of it. We teach the teachers a different concept of teaching than the teacher as pouring into the students. We teach the teacher a way of offering and supporting the learning, but not trying to control it. And then we show how to restructure the school so that the school is functioning to support interdependence amongst the students, where they see that their well-being and the well-being of other students is interconnected so that they are concerned with each other's well-being and not competing with each other. I have described these in my book called Life Enriching Education, the schools that we have around the world in uh, several of them, such as 50 such schools in Israel, a 50% decrease in measures of violence in the school after we tra transformed the school from the regular school into a nonviolent communication school. And academic achievement goes up in these schools, violence goes down. Uh, the hard part is getting into the schools. And uh, unfortunately, our helpers in getting into the schools are kids that kill each other. When that happens, then all of a sudden the schools are open up to, you know, they, they're desperate. But unless you get, you know, that happening, it's pretty not easy to get into the door. Fortunately, the success we're having in many of our schools is now opening doors without having to wait for the, to get so tragic that people are desperate. So are you doing anything in the United States? We have schools in the United States, in, um, some in Cleveland, Ohio. We have one in the Navajo Nation in Arizona that's doing very well. Uh, we have some in uh, California. Uh, so we have some in the United States. Not as many as I would like. We're getting there. Not as many as we have in Serbia. Not as many as we have in Israel, Palestine. Uh, some of those desperate countries are more open to doing some radical things to get the next generation to have other ways of resolving conflicts. Thank you. Hi. My name's Claudia, and my question has to do with um, at the observation stage when um, talking with someone who is upset or angry or any time the verbal message conflicts with the nonverbal message, which is really a big part of the communication. And I think in some books it says it's 90% of it. What is, um, 
I guess, a delicate or a useful way in which the nonverbal portion of what they're saying can be reflected back when what they're telling you is totally different. So uh, you might say it this way, you know, uh, I hear what your, your words are saying, but I don't trust it. There's just things in the tone of your voice that make me wonder whether you're really telling me what's going on. So I'd like you to tell me now how you feel when I say that. So I'm being honest that I don't trust it. I'm saying the observation, the tone of voice, and other things don't jibe for me with what you're saying. So I'd like you to tell me how you feel when I tell you I don't trust what you're saying. The other person say, are you saying I'm a liar? I'm just telling you what's alive in me. I don't know whether you're lying or not. I'm just telling you. Given the tone of your voice and the way you said that, I just don't trust. So, okay. Does that answer? That answers it. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, my name is John. I work with a project down in Costa Rica called the Peace Army of Costa Rica. And nonviolent communication is one of the two central techniques that are being used in Costa Rican schools down there uh, in this project. The other is uh, heart math from the Institute uh, for Heart Math. And it's just whether you would have any advice for us in trying to expand this uh, project, given your experience with trying to bring this message to uh, various people in the rest of the world. Any, any suggestions I have about how to spread it? Yes. The main suggestions I have are ask, ask, ask. Now, what do I mean by ask, ask, ask? First, who do we know that's in the system now that might be interested? So we go to those people and ask them, would you be willing to let us do a demonstration of what this looks like? So you ask for that. If we need funds to do this, to get there to the place, then we ask, ask, ask people to give us the funds to do it. So for me, it's largely amount of being clear what you want to offer and then asking for the support we need to make the connections and to make it happen. We're coming to the end of our program. And Marshall, for those listeners who came in late, could you give us a one-minute summary of what you feel is the most important concepts of NVC? The most important concept is to be conscious of how good it feels to contribute to life, you see. That's uh, the central idea of the whole process. Let's connect with each other in a way that makes giving to each other enjoyable. That's our nature. That's what we enjoy more than anything else. Yes, there's all the violence because our education for all these years has got us disconnected from that. So the most important thing to remember is just how good it feels to use our enormous power, and each of us has enormous power, to contribute to making life wonderful for people. Our words can contribute to people's well-being. Our touch, services we can provide. So each of us is enormously powerful in our ability to contribute to life, and there's nothing that feels better than doing that. Thank you, Marshall Rosenberg. And to read more about nonviolent communication and get access to books and materials and to find out about training opportunities and workshops with our guest, Marshall Rosenberg, you can visit the Center for Nonviolent Communication online at cnvc.org. That's cnvc.org. You can also look for CNVC initiatives in your own community. 
You can also find out more about this program as well as learn how to order a CD copy at our website, which is peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks is produced by Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit media organization that creates radio and online content meant to inform, inspire, and improve the human condition. To learn how you can support this work, you can visit the website goodradioshows.org. That's goodradioshows.org. Special thanks to actors Linda Rodek and Scott Chirot. We're also grateful for the assistance of Carol Boss, Holly Kawakami, Todd Lovato, Gary Barron with the Center for Nonviolent Communication, Jory Mansky, Sigrid Gustafson, also Dale Staben, and Peter Ennen of the First Church of Religious Science staff where today's program was recorded. Our recording engineer was Nola Daves-Moses. Technical support from Tristan Klum and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 